0: There's just not enough stress on the tendon and we only measure muscle passively. We don't measure it during active stretches, something we're trying to do right now in the lab. Um, But what we do know, at least as far as stiffness is concerned, is that when we activate the muscle and then force it into a stretch over a period of weeks, we get massive increases in range of motion, but they seem to occur with an increase in tendon stiffness. In other words, this shows us that we can stiffen tissues, if that's what you want, as well as massively improve range of motion. So stretching or these sorts of range of motion enhancing activities don't necessarily have to occur at the expense of tissue stiffness if stiffness is what you want. And that's another discussion.
1: That was Dr. Anthony Blazovich speaking on loaded stretching, range of motion benefits, as well as its impact on tendon stiffness. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by SimplyFaster.com. that's simply with an I faster.com they are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 119 of the just live performance podcast. I'm your host Joel Smith. Thanks for tuning in today. We have an amazing episode for you with Dr. Tony Blazevich. He is a sports scientist and biomechanist at Dr. Edith Cohen University. He is one of the field-leading researchers and observers of trends of biomechanics, muscle and tendon physiology, nervous system signaling, and many other facets of athletic performance. And uh, Dr. Blazevich, actually, it's interesting. I I saw a a post of his on Twitter recently. I I'm a a guy who actually tries to really limit my time on social media, but it it was um, something to do with hamstrings, adductors, and glutes, and sprinting, and and injury prevention, and I was just thinking back to myself, like, this guy has been massively influential on my own um, academic career, particularly. I, I remember his research studies on muscle tendon compliance back when I was in graduate school, going through that, continually hearing his name pop up in many impactful studies and i can certainly tell you like i one of the things that really defines this show is people who not only know the research but also have like the intuition of an athlete or of a coach and dr blazevic as you'll um, as you'll be able to see throughout the episode has a tremendous like holistic full circle way of thinking about some of these uh, highly debated Aspects of performance. So, uh, for example, we're going to get into like static stretching and potentiation, and, and we tend to think of those in very black and white. Let's pick a couple research studies that prove our case, and we'll be done with it. Type mentality. Um, this is one of the most, if not the, if not the, <laughs> capital T H uh, E most full full circle holistic episode that I've done in regards to the research on various aspects of sport training and so those aspects we're going to get into primarily are static stretching in in warm-ups and something that obviously it's old school right but is it really that bad what does the research actually say about how we actually apply it not not the five minute stretch that that blows up your <laughs> muscles ability to, to stretch and shorten and react um, we're also going to talk as you listen to in the teaser about loaded stretching um, and pnf stretching as not only the ideas and the science behind it but the application um, we're also going to talk about stretching in terms of the idea of recovery from training. Dr. Blazevic is going to go uh, heavily into potentiation, physiology, muscle temperature, all these things that impact an athlete's ability to warm up for their maximal importance, and how sometimes the research can be skewed in saying how good um, potentiation can be in terms of research design. And you know, again, it's it's I'm definitely a brain that's often more geared towards the art than the science itself, but this is all related because there's the art that goes into the science. And uh, Dr. Blazevich is awesome at taking a look at that and making it applicable. And he's going to talk a little bit about muscle fascicle length, muscle tendon compliance, and its impact on performance, as well as facets of eccentric training and various ways that it impacts athletes. So, again, this is like if you uh, if you are in the industry, you probably have an opinion towards each of these topics. This was a f- fantastic episode for me to do just because, um, again, just to like hear full circle all these factors that go into these particular um, these particular aspects of performance that are very important to all of us. And I-, I can tell you, especially for potentiation, there's just him talking about muscle temperature. I'm like, holy oh, like cow, this is-, this is mind-blowing, this is awesome. And I think this episode also set the record for the amount of quotes that I have on the actual uh, Just Fly Sports main page. So, uh, again, this is a tremendous episode that has massive benefit, whether you are a Ph.D., you're a sports scientist, you're a coach, even if you're an athlete, uh, I know you're going to benefit from this one. So, uh, let's get on to it, episode 119 with Dr. Anthony Blazovich. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. It's great to be talking to you, Joel. Yeah, well, I am always I always love talking to people from Australia, Australia, New Zealand, the other side of the pacific and uh so far i've had great luck in the audio holding up for these chats so i'm uh really excited to talk to you today
0: yeah i hope the audio holds up it's uh it's a it's a nice crisp morning hopefully the signals fly over the internet very easily for you today let's go away eh?
1: yeah no doubt um Yeah, hopefully you're having a good morning there, and for the people who aren't familiar with you, I know obviously we have a little bit of a divide between us and a lot of listeners in the United States, but can you give maybe the nutshell version of your background, what you do now, and how you got there?
0: Okay. The nutshell version, I guess. So from a, an applied perspective, I guess, you know, I've always played sports, loved a lot of sports, basketball, swimming, track and field, cricket in Australia is a big sport. That was one of mine when I was a kid. Uh, and eventually moved from, I guess, track and field and sprint running over to rugby where I was a winger for quite some years. Um, from a, um, a training or athlete perspective, I guess I've worked mostly in the track and field and rugby areas, but also love working with other sports and, and teaching uh, athletes how to run and change direction and minimise injury risk. Um, from a, an academic perspective, you know I finished my PhD in biomechanics in 2001 over on the east coast of Australia, and since then, I've been a lecturer and now professor in biomechanics. Um, but actually, a lot of my research, as you may know, has a lot of medical imaging trying to understand i guess the 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 tissue biomechanics the muscle and tenderness tissues and how they function and now uh, a lot more neurophysiology a lot of the answers are in understanding how we activate our muscles how we control that muscle activation because in the end that's what underpins the biomechanics or the techniques so i'd say maybe half my my stuff is is neurophysiology these days
1: yeah it's it's amazing just how complex the, the human body is and how many layers there are to dig in as i'm sure you're you're fully getting into with some of the work in the tissues and, and what in the the neurophysiology.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, but that's where the fun is. It'd be boring if it was all too easy,
1: right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We would. How would how would we get in a flow state if it was just you know move from here to here and, <laughs> and do this one cue, right? Like <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, so there's yeah so much involved. Uh, so one of the the questions I was really excited to ask you. I was going to say too. I um, and we had mentioned this before a little bit, but I. Uh, I remember reading your your research as some of the first research I had remembered um, from back in my grad school days, so 2006, 2007, so probably not too long after you had gotten your PhD, and uh, one of the things that I think is, is related to, uh, it was a tendon research, that or tendon uh, compliance and stiffness you were talking about, uh, one of the things that, might be related to that, I don't know, but uh, static stretching, or, or static and dynamic stretching, as part of the warm-up process, or the recovery process, what if you will, before or after a, a training session is such a, a hot-button, a, a very um, contentious part of the debate. I think, uh, and maybe I shouldn't say even contentious as much as pendulum oriented, said, right, like it was static and then it's dynamic, um, and then we're trying to figure out how to do the static and the dynamic, and do we still do static stretching after lifting or working out? And, and I've been part of... Um, a lot of uh, continuing education systems that I go through are very uh, against static stretching and sometimes I wonder if it's as part of an ideal too, you know, like we have this other way and we're modulating the nervous system and, and it's cool. But anyways, uh, what I wanted to ask you is what is the current research saying about uh, some of the different modes of stretching, particularly let's start with static stretching in regards to preparing athletes for training sessions?
0: okay yeah big question Uh, obviously there's a lot of emotion around this one these days but but also a very broad question so it's it's hard to encapsulate it in a small sort of period of time it usually takes me about two hours to go through the research on all that so i'll do my best to to shorten it we'll start with just pre-exercise or pre-training or pre-competition stretching so obviously traditionally you know static stretching since about the 1980s has been the most used form of stretching of course before that actually dynamic stretching was the key Uh, and a lot of uh, clinicians felt that dynamic stretching was increasing injury risk and they thought that some of the the injuries that they saw were because people were actively stretching these cold muscles as they thought and Mm -hmm. and this was leading to injury so without any serious research on the topic you know static stretching where you relax the muscle and stretch it more gently you go through a full range of motion that of course led to more significant uh, acute changes in range of motion which is why people think that stretching is so useful i Surely it's about improving range of motion and this does everything for you. And so static stretching is, is now the big deal, you know? Um, But in the last 20 years, as you've read, obviously, um, you know, there have been some issues around the benefits of static stretching. And one of those is it's uh, effect on injury risk. Now, it turns out the current state of the evidence is probably that static stretching before sport and exercise has only a very small effect on injury risk. Uh, some people would suggest that, that's, that overall injury risk is probably not affected at all, and they'd be reasonably right. Although some of the studies in um, have been in military personnel and these things, you know, certainly – maybe not people who sit at their office desk for eight hours and then go and play a pickup basketball game or something like that. And and we should all keep that in mind that there's very little research in the area. So, you know, to really claim that we know how to use stretching in all these different contexts is is, it's, it's just a poor claim, but the, the other thing about stretching that people oh, – sorry, but the, as far as injury is concerned, actually there is some evidence and there's at least four reviews now where the reviewers of the articles have felt that there is sufficient evidence to say that there is at least a small to moderate effect of pre-exercise static stretching on at least muscle injury risk in running-based sports. So we're coming very, very specific there that maybe there is a benefit to injury and while it might be small um, – And you could argue that there's, you know, there's lots of other things we can do to minimize injury. The other thing to remember is, remember, we removed dynamic stretching under the belief that it caused injury. And not one single study, prospectively, has ever examined the effect of dynamic stretching on injury risk. So what we're doing at the moment is saying, well, let's do a lot of dynamic stretching without the evidence that it can reduce injury risk at all, which I find really interesting. I mean, if you said to someone, you know, we got rid of smoking because we think it caused cancer and then everyone sort of decided to pull it back in because, uh, you know, without any evidence, I think that would be a problem. And yet in sports sciences, we use dynamic stretching without any evidence that it's not going to cause injury that we originally thought it would cause and now let's just put everything on the table I use dynamic stretching in my warm-ups all the time so I'm not advocating against it I use it a lot and and I'm sure most of your listeners do but I just want to maybe frame it that when we get all emotional and say here's the the camp I'm in and here's my argument those people who want to remove static stretching completely and put in all the dynamic stretching it's worth just remembering what we actually know from science and that is we don't know much Mm -hmm. now when it comes to performance it gets even more complex because there's more uh, research there. We know, and you can do this in yourself, if you go into the gym, stretch your pecs for you know many, many minutes, five, ten minutes, and go and try and do bench press, you know you're weak. I mean, that's something that we all noticed before the research told us that this was a problem. There is no doubt that prolonged static stretching of a muscle can reduce the ability to activate the muscle, and by activating, I mean we reduce probably the firing frequency of the motor unit, because of course, we can always recruit all of our motor units, but we can't typically fire them at their highest frequencies. So this seems to be a result, in fact, of a mechanism at the spinal cord that I like to call the spinal amplifier. In your nerves that go from the spine to the muscle, they receive signals from the brain, of course. But there's a a physiological process that occurs at the beginning of that nerve in the dendrites, those little feelers that reach out and make connections with other nerves. And they can allow an inward current that occurs all the time. So every time you contract your muscle, you actually set up these inward currents. And it turns out that those inward currents, that's a flow of sodium or calcium into the nerve allows that nerve to fire more easily. And what this means is every time you contract a muscle, it can then increase its force nicely because these inward currents also generate, uh, get generated and that amplifies the signals for us and we generate more muscle force. Now, we were interested that in animal studies, these things were switched off. In certain, uh, when, sorry, when these things were switched off, say pharmacologically or whatever, muscle forces were reduced to half or less than half. Wow. So this amplifier is seriously significant. And we borrowed a few of the tests that they used to do in animals and set one up in the lab where we vibrate the tendon and stimulate the muscle with electrical stimulation to, to look for some telltale signs of these inward currents. And we found that static stretching for say four or five minutes turned off largely turned off these inward currents so we now believe that the loss of muscle force and loss of neural drive to the muscle is a result of switching off this amplification system that occurs in your spinal cord and it switches off under most instances for somewhere between five and 15 minutes so if you do too much stretching you are weaker you will perform worse for about five to 15 minutes but here's the thing that it only lasts about five to 15 minutes. Now, if you do intermittent stretching for a prolonged period of time, we actually do see just a few percent ongoing loss, maybe even up to half an hour or an hour. So that could be a problem. But it doesn't happen if you only stretch a muscle for, say, 30 seconds. And actually, most athletes warming up for sport, I think you'd be struggling to get them mm-hmm. to stretch each muscle for more than a total of 30 seconds. Yes.
1: yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and they also don't tend to perform immediately after stretching they tend to do, hopefully, a full warm-up, right? All their drills, all their running drills, they progress from you know, general to specific, they progress from low-intensity to high-intensity, and it can be anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes before they actually finally do any kind of competition. Now, our recent randomized controlled trial, as well as at least three other well controlled trials in my opinion have shown that when we do this there is no effect of static stretching at all in fact if there is an effect it's a slight positive effect on speed and power output of a muscle add to this the fact that static stretching increases the amount of force we can produce at long muscle lengths which of course is really important in a lot of sports and maybe for injury prevention we start to see maybe why static stretching could be useful for an injury prevention, at least of the muscle, at least in those running-based sports. So I guess the take-home message at the moment is static stretching can be problematic in some circumstances. You don't want to do a lot of it before lifting heavy in the gym or doing maximal athletic performances. But if you do a full warm-up after it or as part of it, and if you're only stretching each muscle for you know seconds or up to a minute... it's it's probably having no negative and potentially even a positive effect and the last thing we also found of course is that we were were very interested to look at you know perceptions and how they played into it and we found that if athletes were allowed to do any kind of stretching at all whether it was dynamic or static they always felt more prepared for their sport so that psychological element we think is really important so if, if athletes really want to do some static stretching and you tell them not to that could have psychological consequences which I don't agree with so my take at the moment, based on the current evidence, and we've done a lot of this research, is that actually I use dynamic stretching. It's not because it's it's better than uh, static stretching once it's part of a full warm-up, but it allows me to think about how I'm activating my muscles, how they feel when I'm moving them rapidly through large ranges of motion before I go and do more complex tasks or skills. I also allow athletes to do some forms of static stretching, but I keep it. In fact, a lot of them only do each muscle for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. It, it helps them prepare for some reason, and then we do a full proper warm-up as you'd expect.
1: That's kind of where we're at at the moment. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, no, that was that was really good, and uh, even down to like the, the neural impulse and and talking about the, the bit. To me, the big difference is when people people like to lump everything into one camp, like like static stretching for twenty seconds or ten or twenty, which is probably what happens when most athletes do it. Versus four, which, like you said, no one sits there and cranks on their hamstring for four minutes straight. At least you don't see it often. And I think an athlete athletes are smart too. I mean, you. I mean, I've done. A little bit of like um Pavel Satzlin's Relax in a stretch book just, just for fun. And it's like I, I get up from this like it's ex- long extended breathing based stretch and I just feel like the most unresponsive person on the planet. And I, I think a little bit's just wired in this. It's like, oh that didn't I don't feel very like quick right now and uh so I, I do think it's it's really interesting how we can generalize something based off of the extreme of it and, and I do I, I really do think it's interesting as well how you were saying that the uh, the, the research tends to lean towards a moderate to uh, mild uh, reduction in, in, in injury, and I imagine that research was with stretching that was probably of typical durations, like 20 or 30 seconds if you really went into it and saw how long people were doing those movements for.
0: Sorry, can you just repeat the end of that question there?
1: Oh yeah, the, the research that you were um, you were hint- you were getting at like the research review on static stretching, uh, if yeah. running sports was hinting at the uh, that that static stretching carried a mild uh, possible mild to moderate uh, injury reduction uh, for static stretching and and just I'm assuming that static stretching uh, the programs they were reviewing were probably of the like ten to thirty second range, not not two or three or four minutes
0: yeah possibly i mean there are there are actually very few studies that have done the stretching in those ranges um, when we and others have reviewed the research to try and find out what 's going on we to be honest, we have included all of the papers you know, and some of these um, are doing you know multiple muscles for a period of five or even ten minutes so so none of them are actually stretching each individual muscle for many minutes um, but you're right most of them are stretching each individual muscle for maybe 20 seconds or 30 seconds so that the total stretching duration is about five minutes or 10 minutes for the whole body Um, and in those studies there does seem to be evidence for a very small reduction in injury risk uh, at least muscle injury risk uh, in running based sports um the other thing to remember is that there's a lot of things we don't know about stretching. I mean, most people would think that the re-stretch really to improve range of motion and that this is what reduces injury risk. So if you believe that, then you come to the logical conclusion that if 20 or 30 seconds of stretching isn't really making you more flexible and we know that we kind of lose that acute gain in flexibility relatively quickly, then, well, surely stretching isn't really helping you, Right. But there could be a huge number of other changes that occur, both in the feedback we get from sensory receptors like stretch receptors and muscle spindles and these things, Golgi receptors. There can also be changes in the extracellular matrix and connective tissues that we just aren't yet able to see or measure. So this idea that maybe we stretch and we just feel a little bit better, you know, I'm I'm not sure that we should just throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, when we all seem to migrate. And I know there's been some papers in in uh, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research where where people have surveyed coaches and athletes and found that a lot of them are still doing static stretching and, and reached conclusions such as, well, these people aren't listening to scientific evidence. What can we do to change them? And I sort of look at that and think, well, if they're still doing it and they're elite athletes, is is there something we're missing? What are we missing about it that might be useful That we're not seeing and when i was at brunel university of course the jamaican track and field team used to train there in the summers and you'd have usain bolt warming up doing static stretching
1: well Mm -hmm.
0: he runs pretty quick so there's there's something about it that a lot of athletes feel they want to do the other the final thing i just wanted to say on this topic though is when when studies look at pre-exercise static stretching uh and then they find a small to moderate reduction in muscle injury risk in running based sports the other thing to remember is we, we, we can't actually tell whether that's because it's pre-exercise or not, because in all of these studies, what they do is they have to get people to do pre-exercise stretching for a period of time and then look at injury rates. And if you're doing pre-exercise stretching for a period of time, well, that's chronic stretching training, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. And we know that adding chronic stretching training after training sessions or as separate sessions, a lot of people will... will take the opinion that the research is pretty clear that that reduces injury risk so you know whether just doing static stretching before tomorrow's races or or competition is going to reduce injury risk I'm really not sure but we do feel that there is a perceived benefit we do feel like it's doing something for us so if your athlete feels that and if they're not going to stretch too long then I would suggest at the moment that maybe we just let them do what they feel better doing and mentally they're more prepared for their event race competition
1: yeah i, I really like how you put that and I, I like the usain bull anecdote as well i i do feel like that's where there is you know looking at the art and the science how do people feel how does this work its way into the practice and, and like you said too there's a lot that we don't know about exactly what's going on i mean that's something i've thought about a lot in the sense of i have definitely been at the belief of the 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 brain's neural control and the tone and length of the muscles and and then there's other things to consider like the fascia and the the tendons and all this stuff. And, and if the, the muscle is going to go kind of back to the length that it was before, you know, the brain's going to control the muscle length anyways, based off of various factors. And so why even stretch, yeah. but I, I think about too, like, well, maybe you, you got calmed out, you calmed your breathing down a little bit, you know, or I don't know, there's probably <laughs> like you're saying, there's probably a lot more things going on. And that's, that's kind of where my mind went to. So yeah, fascinating yeah. stuff.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say just really quickly there, we haven't even touched on the effects of static stretching on sympathetic responses. You know, this static stretching can reduce heart attack. You know, it, it really does have significant effects on on uh, our nervous systems, our mm-hmm. adrenal systems. And, you know, one of the, the things that I like is maybe after a training session is having, you know, the squad sit down and just do some general static stretching just to calm everything down, have a chat about this session. What were the strengths and weaknesses of it? What do we want to achieve tomorrow? You know, you don't have to overstretch. We're I'm not talking about people doing you know a half an hour yoga session but there can be a lot of other benefits that we don't even discuss amongst highly stressed and highly trained athletes that can be beneficial.
1: Yeah, that's awesome because I, I, I feel like we look at one thing like one aspect of this cl- complex human organism just muscle length that's controlled by the brain or, or for for the reasons of keeping balance in the body and all these things. And, and then would completely shut out all these other potential benefits. I, I mean, shoot, the most successful season I had, I mean, anecdotally, but the best track season I ever had, I stretched for a good, you know, stretched and foam rolled for a good 20 minutes after I practice because I thought it was going to be helpful. And I mean, if, if I would have gone with, put my brain in myself now back then, I would have said to myself, well, well this foam rolling isn't really ironing out my fascia or reducing trigger points and the stretching isn't really lengthening my muscles so i would have just probably sabotaged the whole thing but i probably was getting something out of it um so it's it's um it is really an interesting phenomenon with uh, the the complexity of it all and even let alone too, like, uh, and th- that's the first time I had heard the effect on the, the heart and the sympathetic nervous system like that. I, I've always, um, I also, what's your take on like loaded and weighted stretching? I know that might be a whole nother can of worms, but that's something I've gotten into a lot, <laughs> done um, done a few podcasts on like the extreme isometrics or basically extended weighted uh, stretching in like a lunge position or a hamstring hamstring stretch position. Uh, for recovery's sake, is there, what's the research saying in in that role okay so well let's just leave the recovery thing just for a second because and,
0: and remind me of it if we, if we don't come back to oh, it oh yeah no doubt. now the, the yeah the good thing about this one is again in my opinion based on the current scientific evidence and again you know we've done a lot of work in this area um tony k from university of northampton has led a lot of these studies we we Of course, use, you know, uh, I guess what you might call functional stretching or active muscle stretching in athletes. That's where you activate muscles and go into extreme lunge positions, you know, side split positions, Um, you know, all of this idea that you're looking at what we maybe call mobility, which is where the muscles are active and still moving through these larger ranges of motion. And we know that a a lot of coaches love them. A lot of athletes feel good and they just feel that that benefits them both acutely prior to exercise, but also in special sessions to make sure that they maintain optimal range of motion. Now, our research on this backs that up completely. It, it, it appears as though when we activate a muscle and then push it into a stretch, we get better ranges of motion improvements than we than we see during static stretching. So, if we do six weeks of stretching of the calf muscles on an isokinetic dynamometer, where we activate the muscle first and once it's highly active, we then force it into a stretch. And in fact, in these studies, we don't even hold the stretch; we immediately release it, and we don't even go to the maximum range of motion. I mean, effectively, this is. Eccentric training. We, we just like to make it, call it, um, uh, active stretching because we activate the muscle and then forcibly stretch it and then relax it. We don't sort of lower a weight or something like this. Um, and when we do that, you know, in, in just 12 sessions, twice a week for six weeks, we get about three times the improvement in range of motion we see doing daily static stretching. So we know it's effective. Um, one belief, uh, is that it, it, it alters the way the brain and spinal cord sort of see your stretch. So stretching is a learning effect. We pretty much know that it's how you tolerate the stretch load that matters. You can pretty much do the splits now. Your brain just won't let you. And what we think is, is that the additional feedback we get from activating the muscle first simply sends more signals, gives more information to the brain and spinal cord and allows us to learn to be more mobile or more flexible quicker. The, the key to this too is that when a lot of people talk about static stretching, they're under the belief that this makes a lot of the tissues themselves more compliant. And that's that can't. That's just basically not true. Uh, Marcus Tilk found some evidence maybe after static stretching that the tendon might be more compliant. But most of the studies that we've conducted and that others have conducted, there's just not enough stress on the tendon. And we only measure muscle passively. We don't measure it during active stretches, something we're trying to do right now in the lab. Um, But what we do know, at least as far as stiffness is concerned, is that when we activate the muscle and then force it into a stretch over a period of weeks, we get massive increases in range of motion. But they seem to occur with an increase in tendon stiffness. In other words, this shows us that we can stiffen tissues, if that's what you want, as well as massively improve range of motion. So stretching or these sorts of range of motion enhancing activities don't necessarily have to occur at the expense of tissue stiffness if stiffness is what you want and that's another discussion
1: um another thing that we've sorry oh i said that you get the best of both worlds like i'm just i'm just like my mind's like blowing up here. I'm like, that's it's uh, it's it's exactly. awesome. Yeah, you get the best of both world worlds. I mean, yeah, it's like the, these extreme isometric lunge or weighted long lunge type stuff. It makes me feel even better about all that stuff. So, yeah, um, we think this
0: is really cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. When when we saw these results, we just thought, well, isn't this what everyone's after? You know, yes, this is fantastic. <laughs> but but the other thing that we've done too is we were interested in PNF stretching. Now, if if you do a meta-analysis, you won't necessarily see that PNF stretching is better than static stretching, and this is. You know, for those people listening to a podcast, I'm a big fan of meta analyses, but they can absolutely lead us astray because every single study is done differently. And if you were to do a meta analysis, you'd find that static stretching and PNF stretching have approximately the same advantage. But if you look at a randomized controlled trial, we very very commonly see that pnf stretching improves range of motion more than static stretching whether it's in an acute session so if you're trying to immediately enhance range of motion or over a longitudinal training period what we were interested though is that pnf stretching is basically activating the muscle while it's stretched and i mean i know it's called proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation but i can promise you from a neurological standpoint it's not doing what it does because of some funky, cool neurological thing. That's just untrue. And that's been proven untrue, but it's doing something, right? What we decided to do, what Tony Kay led a uh, few studies doing actually was to stretch the muscle for five seconds as a static stretch. But then instead of applying the contraction with the muscle on stretch, he took the muscle off stretch and did the contraction and then moved the muscle back into contraction. And we found absolutely identical acute tissue changes, absolutely identical change in the tolerance to stretch and absolutely identical changes in, in the acute improvement in range of motion. In other words, activating the muscle off stretch was as effective as activating it on stretch. And when you activate the muscle interchangeably with static stretching of some way, it's more effective than static stretching alone. So, there's something about muscle contractions that works. And we think that this is why we notice that, you know, whatever you're doing, active stretching, mobility training, whatever it is, you know, yoga, (laughs) where you're active and moving into these ranges of motion, I don't know, whatever you're doing, it does seem to have benefits
1: above static stretching in this regard. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster yeah that's that's fascinating stuff it also makes me think of an exercise that i've always really liked and i got this from this this inno sport group that was just popular throughout the, the mid-2000s is this crazy different training system and one of the exercises that they had which i've always as long as i've trained sprinters i've made people do this exercise and always tried to explain it in some way shape or form um, if i would have had this research study maybe i would have gotten a little better buy-in but i've always loved it and that's where you're in a a split squat position and the instructions were to maximally tense the muscle at about the parallel position and then just relax as fast as you can and drop and bounce out of the bottom and uh, the first time i tried that i didn't even know i didn't even know if i really even saw a video this was when i was in college and then i was just do my own stuff all the time and i drove my coach nuts but i uh I, I did this for a few weeks maybe like three four weeks and I remember after that time period, I was triple jumping, and I just my I had to move my steps back like two or three feet. I I felt so fast and open and loose on my approach, and I was almost positive in my mind it was because of that movement. And anyways, it's cool to hear that research with the tension first and then the moving into the stretch range and how that could increase the range of motion. And it's like a, a more athletic way to do it rather than just just cranking on the muscle i guess you could say
0: exactly exactly right yeah now what we're going to do is figure out why because i'm sure everyone wants to know why clearly it's training the brain or the spinal cord to let you do something and it's seems to be effective right i mean it's at these long ranges of motion where where we've got a whole bunch of inhibitory signals that are stopping us activate muscles maximally and as you kind of notice when you run when you do it it, it feels like it's doing something that when we do running or sprinting or jumping um it, it it's really helping us so I, I think there's so much more work to be done i wish i could explain it all to you but i can't
1: <laughs> yeah no it's it's it sounds like yeah there's a big uh field of research ahead with all these factors that go into it but it's just exciting too because it's like exciting to be creative and put it into practice and in either training or stretching or, or recovery which i know you wanted me to remind you so here we go uh, so static stretching or stretching in terms of recovery from training. Uh, obviously, a very favorite practice over the years, sworn by by many athletes or at least practiced by many athletes uh, what are what are some takeaways and thoughts on that?
0: Well, the first takeaway message is, at least in my opinion, there is very little research looking at the effect of post-exercise stretching on recovery rates. I mean, we, we know that stretching after intense exercise that would normally lead to some sort of muscle-damaging effect does not stop the muscle-damaging effect. It transiently, transiently makes us feel more mobile. Um, and certainly in the days after exercise, if we stretch when we're sore, we feel better for a small period of time, but it doesn't seem to have an important ongoing benefit as far as that's concerned. So the you know, whether it's helping us in recovery or not really is up in the air. Uh, having said that, we do come back to a whole bunch of other things that may be beneficial with stretching or mobility work performed after. And that is, again, you know, the group comes together, you've got time to reflect, so there can be a positive effect there. You've got the reduction in sympathetic tone and stress relaxation responses that are really important to calm people down and get them back to focus and reduce anxiety. And one belief is that when a lot of those stress hormones are lower, we're already into the recovery process. So theoretically, at least it may promote recovery by getting us back into a more standard state after exercise. But to my knowledge, that's never actually been tested and we don't really know. The, um, the other thing is is that it allows us to check for things. So if there is some sort of small bit of damage or injury and you're going through your stretching exercises, you can sometimes find an area that's sort of a bit, I guess, uh, on spasm or locked up for some reason and allows you to treat that, whether that's with passive stretching or with dynamic stretching or with massage or whatever it is, is, is up to you. But definitely you can find those areas after training that may be on a little bit of spasm and allow you to stretch through those before walking away and getting cold and everything else. And a final benefit is that I, I can think of is again, we there is some evidence, but it's not as strong as maybe some people think that stretching when you're warm will have a greater ongoing benefit than stretching when you're cold. Again, you know the, the evidence isn't so strong on that to be honest. But um, at least if you if we know that just regular stretching can help minimize injury risk. And in fact, by the way, there are at least two strong studies showing that regular stretching can reduce muscle soreness and muscle damage or DOMS after training. So it's prophylactic in that sense. Maybe just doing it straight after training is the right time because a lot of athletes don't go home and do their separate training stretching sessions. So maybe it's an an ideal opportunity rather than an optimum method, at least based on current evidence.
1: Sure. Yeah. it's fascinating stuff. And I, yeah, that was the thing that always got me is the, I had heard when I was in, in college and afterwards it was like, it, there was all these training programs were like, Oh, stretch a lot, like all the time to recover. And sometimes I wonder too, if that just, it's just like the same thing as putting ice on an injury. Cause it's analgesic or whatever, like you stretch and yeah. it's like a little pain reduction. And that's where that like thought process, uh, at least the thought process part of it comes from. So, that's a, it's really that's possible. Yeah, that's very, very possible. People felt better. Said, ah, yeah. oh, what it's doing is
0: recovering me quicker. Yeah. Yes. Again, if it, if it makes you feel better, maybe that's a good thing to do. Just as, you know, as long as we can't see a negative consequence, you know, keeping people in a positive frame of mind and keeping them training is probably more important than the, these half percenters that we often talk about, isn't it?
1: yeah one thing that struck me really powerfully i was at a jd mayo's central virginia sports performance seminar it was like four years ago and a guy uh, mike gentry he was a strength and conditioning coach for football at virginia tech who is just who's one of the pioneers of the field over here and virginia tech's been a really really good team um had it was like this this was like printed front and center on the manual that he gave out it was like nothing special unless you make it special and to me it was just speaking on like the the different things in the program giving a giving an emphasis to them or like giving people something to believe in, you know? And like, I don't think that I don't think static stretching was, uh, I don't remember anything about static stretching or that he addressed from that. But I just always think about like, like you said, if it's not hurting the athlete and I think that's where the research is really good. Cause it's like, okay, the research says this isn't hurting you, maybe isn't helping you, but also my coach put my ego away and my desire to be right all the time by the books and give you something that lets you do something you're believing in. Cause if I, You know, if I Mister if I if I go to the research for everything and tell you all these things aren't helping you, well, I'm probably not helping you that much.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I think you've hit the nail on the head. The other thing to realize too is that, you know, we we sit there and 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 you brought it up before. Like I, I I I look back in hindsight, and there was a year there where I stretched more and I performed better than ever. And then you know, of course, the the counter argument to that is, oh, it could have been placebo. You might have just been by chance, and maybe you would have been even faster if you had of. Not done the stretching. Maybe you just did everything else well that year, and then you know they're all reasonable arguments, right? And, and you weren't making the claim otherwise. But but the other thing to remember is that you know coaching and athlete training, there is so much art to it that you know that that's really complicated. But we can bring science into the the weight room. We can bring science onto the track and onto the field, and that is. You know, instead of making lots of changes all the time to our athletes, you know, if you can get athletes and look at long-term, years down the track, and you slowly or independently manipulate certain parts of their training, you you should be taking data on your athletes at regular intervals. You know, some coaches believe in it more than others, and that's, you know, that's everyone's decision. But by taking some of the evidence, uh, you can reflect on the numbers and actually see whether for specific athletes there were times when it helped. might be for you that you just happened to be so, so tight and had such poor range of motion inhibitory signals were firing off everywhere and that year more stretching was good if you had it kept doing it the following year it may have tended towards being actually problematic rather than beneficial who knows i mean who, who knows but if you've got reliable you know data testing you know at regular intervals whatever those intervals are then you can reflect on that and, and maybe start to see things because in you know if, if you've got those data from 17 to 23 and then you're at the olympics at 25 hopefully at that point you you know in the 12 months leading up to the Olympics the most likely scenario of what, what's working for you as an individual athlete. And and I think maybe when we're trying to argue for and against a lot of these things, we forget how every person is different and how every person's a different phase of their training um period. Yeah,
1: no, right. So it's it. worth thinking about that. Yeah, no, right on. Yeah, and that year actually was probably my best. I look back at the actual training and the environment that I was training in and it was, it, it blew all my other years out of the water, actually. And I, I think about, because I think about that sometimes. Well, what if I didn't do that stuff? I Maybe it would have been, you know, just the same or, you know, or if I had something else I believed in that I was doing. But yeah, and I, and I don't mention the, um, I don't mention the, the throwing out the research in, in terms of uh, the sense of telling people what's wrong. I it, as, as a, re, I mean, I, I, the longer I've been in this, the more I realize that my own predispositions are very much towards more towards the art side than the data collection side. And that's the thing that I need to do more often. So I'm not always just relying on hunches and those types of things. But knowing the research is is always valuable to me. And that's why I'm I'm really happy to, uh, to chat with you about all these topics that for me, it's always kind of been a lot of it's just a feel thing. But then it's like, I'll bring the research in if I'm just trying to say something's wrong, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, that's not a good way to coach. So, uh, but okay, so we're back to uh, and, and I kind of snuck this question in. You right? We were talking a little bit before about the post act. We're on the warm up topic, and you had said something oh, like about that. this, and I was like floored as soon as you started going into it because I'm just like, man, this is my jam, right? The nervous system and potentiation and all this stuff, and so. Uh, potentiation in warm up, so that the idea of doing some either heavy lifting or plyos or, or however you're getting potentiated to be at your best obviously probably more important for individual sports like track and field or swimming or stuff like that I guess ideally but uh, you had talked about um, how what we think is going on might might not always be so and talked about the importance of temperature and things could you expand a little bit on uh, the the actual role of post-action potentiation and how we should look at and address that you like to ask the
0: questions that people are divided on, don't you? Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> the emotional one.
1: Yes, that's uh, that's pretty much the theme of this podcast. So I always yeah. try my best.
0: Look, I'm probably going to get a lot of comments about this one. So, so of course we know that there are hundreds of papers um, looking at post-activation potentiation in humans. And so by this, I particularly mean where we do some sort of very high intensity, usually Uh, high load, um, voluntary activity. So it could be, you know, heavy squat lifts or an isometric push or a heavier sled toe or something like this. And then we immediately, or at least within minutes, uh, do some sort of higher speed, usually lower load dynamic activity, vertical jump, a sprint run, a change of direction. And we find that relative to prior to that conditioning activity, we now perform a little bit better, you know, and, and most of the research actually shows somewhere between a zero and five percent enhancement, although some show five, ten percent enhancements and some even more than ten percent. And I guess straight away, maybe people need to have a think about what that means. Let's say you had an athlete and you did all your current warm up and did all the right strategies prior to performance, and then you found an extra ten percent improvement in performance after doing some squats. Does that seem reasonable? Does that I mean, if you 10%, that's like a one second over 100 meters. So when we start to talk about these things, it's worth reflecting on what might really be going on here. And if you go back to a lot of those papers, you'll realize that they either do not describe the warm-up that was done prior to the initial testing or the warm-up that was done was obviously, you know, inappropriate or incomplete. So it might be a five-minute cycle warm-up, three practice Vertical jumps and then two or three vertical jump tests. And then we did something. And immediately after, we didn't necessarily see an improvement, but after a few minutes, we start to see this improvement. And the usual explanation is that we don't see it immediately because of the effect of fatigue, which is interesting because I'm not really sure how three or four squats can cause a fatigue that lasts more than one to two minutes. (laughs) And in fact, the research is very clear that one set of squats does not cause fatigue for longer than about one minute. Um... And the second thing is, is that then when the the peak occurs, maybe four or six or seven minutes later, you know, it's often explained as, you know, maybe potentiation through myosin light chain phosphorylation. So that's that thing where in your muscle, you've got sarcomeres, we have actin and myosin that bind and the myosin head, um, I guess, warps or rotates and pulls on the actin. And that's how we get force. And there's a little protein element called a light chain on the myosin. And if... And if uh, phosphorylation occurs, so a break off of phosphate from ATP occurs, giving energy to it, it actually warps the head of myosin. And what that does is increases the likelihood that myosin will actually bind to actin. So for a given neural signal, uh, you should get more cross-bridges bound, more force production. Now, this can only happen at submaximal levels of force because it maximum levels of force, of course, all of your myosin cross-bridges are already bound. So it's really only improved submaximal force. But that'll include rate of force development because as the force is rising, you'd you'd have more force at any instant in time. Now, myosin light chain phosphorylation is exceedingly quickly reversible. That is, it probably peaks several seconds after a conditioning activity. And in that sense, actually, there is a very small amount of fatigue happening in that those first few seconds. Uh, and then the peak potentiation would be observed as far as if we gave a twitch to the muscle, an electrical twitch stimulation to the muscle, it would peak 30 seconds, maybe one minute after. In the minutes after, it declines rapidly. It has a half-life, I think, of about 28 seconds in most of the animal studies, um, which means by about two to three minutes, you're looking at exceedingly low levels of myosin light chain phosphorylation, which is, of course, two to three minutes is before we see the peak in human trials of PAP, which occur typically somewhere between four and ten minutes, depending on lots of variables. So myosin light chain phosphorylation cannot actually explain the effect we see in humans so i'm always surprised when i when i read that and i reflect on muscle physiology uh, and in fact in most of those studies of course they don't do a twitch stimulus to determine whether there was pap present or not or what we call classic or what i tend to call classic pap from largely explained by mice and light chain phosphorylation but but let's be honest there is a performance enhancement there i mean in most of these studies the the warm-up wasn't really done or not done properly but If you do something heavy, you you tend to perform uh, better later and it takes a few minutes for it to occur. So the question is why and and is this useful? Um, If you review all the literature and look for any potential mechanism, which we're doing right now with a few guys in Canada and France trying to figure out this thing out, probably the biggest effect would be muscle temperature. And muscle temperature increases because of the metabolism of the muscle itself, which you hadn't really done anything with in the warm-up because there wasn't one. And now you do this Mm -hmm. big conditioning activity. But maybe 50% of the increase in temperature in the muscle comes from muscle blood flow. So that is the muscle normally sits at about 35 degrees-ish. And then your core temperature is more like 37. So of course, when the vascular beds open, you get a rush of effectively warm blood which raises the temperature to 37 now remember for every one degree increase in muscle temperature you can expect a five to six percent improvement in muscle power output tested in things like cycle sprints and vertical jumps and those data have been around since the 70s so You know, you could have less than a one percent, one degree increase in muscle temperature from a conditioning activity when you haven't warmed up properly, and that would completely account for the improvement we see. And the delay that it takes a few minutes could be a result of the time it takes for the blood shunt to become effective. Now, that may or may not explain all of the effect. But it certainly explains it much better than myosin light chain phosphorylation. Uh, and we've recently done some studies, and other people have done this before us, but we've recently done one where, of course, we don't do a full warm up and you see a nice potentiating effect in squat lift uh, um, being done before vertical jumps. But when we do a proper, what, you know, your listeners know what a full warm up looks like. Uh, and when we do that, we don't get any PAP effect at all in a vertical jump after these squat lifts. Interestingly, we then used elastic bands and I don't want to preempt the paper that might hopefully get published very, very soon. But once we change the way the loading is done with elastic bands, we actually do see some sort of performance enhancement, but it's immediate. We see it immediately and it lasts for a good 10 minutes. And we think that that's because we're changing the way the nervous system is activated. So I'm not saying we can't do some funky, cool things after a full warm up to potentially improve performance, but at least just based on the current scientific evidence. If you don't really warm someone up too much, and then you do some sort of maximal activity, you certainly enhance performance. It's PAP if you want to call it that. But if you fully warm someone up, I, you know, there's no evidence that you can just do some squats or a heavy sled toe and all of a sudden you get a five percent enhancement in performance. So I think that's worth sort of, I guess, reflecting on um, whether it's useful. I guess if, I mean, if you were really, you know, taking elite athletes and getting a five percent enhancement, then surely you'd see squat racks at, you know, every track and field meet, wouldn't you? <laughs> so if our, if, co- if coaches aren't really using this, then does that suggest maybe coaches and athletes have figured out there's something wrong with it? I mean, that doesn't mean that you're not doing some drop jumps. or It doesn't mean you're not doing some bounding. It doesn't mean – but the the benefits of these to the nervous system and to the metabolism of the muscle you know, are, are clearly important as part of a full warm-up. I'm just suggesting that on their own, they're not some unique and awesome stimulus where you can pretty much cheat the system, You know, not really warm up and then – you know win an
1: olympic gold by doing some sort of conditioning activity. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that's Tony, that's some heavy stuff, man. Uh, that's uh I uh one of the things I really like and as you were talking, it, it's really interesting. I I'd never really heard before the the myosin heavy chain and how that half-life is so short and it's like, well okay, well where does this where does this stuff come from then where people are even talking about like 10 minutes out uh, you have know, 10 minutes after you jump higher. but again like you said too i it's almost like I, I did an internship with this um back when i was in college like 21 22 i actually wasn't an internship it was like a day i spent at one of those uh high speed treadmill youth performance places and and it was like they they gave the parents a little sheet with the before and after you ran this much faster and jumped much, this much higher but i think one of the guys who was running it was kind of like yeah, when we test them the first time, like it's almost like there's not a lot of instruction and there's not a lot of <laughs> there's there's uh, and, and as they get used to it, the warm up gets probably more precise and they get more dialed in. And it, it does make me think. Well, yeah, if you just t- jumped cold and didn't do anything, I'm not saying that's what they did, but if you just jumped cold and just didn't do anything, yeah. of course you're gonna get go better. You could probably do just about anything and get better as you go along. So, yeah, it is. It, it and like you said, if the practice, the practice is often um, you know, leading the charge and people who are really dialed in. And yeah, why aren't we seeing more, uh, you know, bars for people doing cleans right before they run and squats and all these things. I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely had experiences as an athlete where I felt I've had that happen. We, we would have max out, but I, I don't know. There's something about just not doing it or not feeling like doing a competition. There's like that, there's a razor's edge too. Like what if you did the squat too soon or too late? Or what if you did too much weight? Or <laughs> I think there's just all these factors too. I've, I remember like I, we, it would have test out weeks when I was, when I was in track. And I remember I, I did my max squat or like two thirds. It wasn't all the way down. Cause I feel like the, the farther you go down, the more fatigue you kind of get. Cause that muscle gets a little more lengthened. And it was like an almost parallel squat. And I remember I walked back out and I had to do my 30 meter, like five or 10 minutes after that. And I remember I barely even tried and was like, I ran faster than I did a month ago by a good deal. And I was like, Oh, that felt pretty good. And but, but it, was one, it was one of those things where I think it's hard to recreate stuff, too, like especially stuff as fine-tuned as that. Just because it worked once doesn't mean it's going to work again the exact same way. That's something I've kind of learned as a coach. Um, but one of the things – so I do want to ask you this. And well, the temperature thing is right on. I love that one degree is 5%, did you say?
0: yeah between 5 and 6 on average with vertical jumps and sprint cycling yeah eggblomp's paper in 1979 is a good one to start
1: with you like that oh that's awesome i have to put that in the show notes i, I love that cuz it, it just makes me think of uh, yeah for me personally and and i shared this with you a little bit but like all oh my everyone i i work with in the vertical jump world it's like they're going to jump the highest um after they play like a pickup basketball game like they that's that's when they're the most ready to go not even after a heavy squat they're after their pickup basketball game you know they played about 20-30 minutes they're sweating really good and and boom and they're they're good to go or my my coach uh when i was in college assistant coach he was super old school guy um loved him to death i know he wasn't a guy who was reading all this research but he was really connected to just super intuitive and he's like oh yeah if you're not ready to go for high jump just go sprint to 200 really fast and then (laughs) go back and high jump again and and i i i don't think i ever did it because i never fully bought in but that temperature thing that's got to be that's got to be where that's coming from and it's it's really cool to think about that and in how that research is backing these things that these coaches have kind of figured out probably through trial and error and their own selves over time and like okay yeah coaches
0: coaches are smart you know they figure a lot of stuff out you know they they, you know i guess the biggest scientific experiment is just all these people out there training every day and sharing knowledge you know some of it goes wrong and then eventually you lose it i mean the other thing to think about too is that you know we, we think oh maybe we'll do a squat lift and then we improve in all these ways well remember a squat list has has a very different movement pattern and so we know that this causes an interference effect we know that if you do it just a concentric activity and then do an isometric if you come straight back to the concentric we can see that your performance is down Uh, and that's because of an interference effect um, and we can see that's been shown to occur at the brain and spinal cord level. It's very, very clear. Um, and so maybe some of this delay that we see is partly because it takes time for temperature to come up, but it might also not be actually a fatigue effect like people thought. Like, As I said, when, when people say, oh, it's a combination of potentiation and fatigue, actually that fatigue lasts only seconds. And if, if you go back and read Brian McIntosh's you know papers where he he really tries to explain that potentiation and fatigue he's talking about classic PAP so the fatigue really only lasts a few seconds and that's simply why PAP is not peaking you know immediately after the event it's taking some sort of time some seconds maybe a minute Uh, And most, whereas I'm not sure that doing four squats really causes four to five minutes of fatigue that we would see before we peak uh, in a normal condition. But interference of movement pattern, of course, can. So you could imagine that muscle temperature goes up, motivation goes up straight after a squat lift if you haven't warmed up properly to start with. But you don't necessarily see the benefit of the temperature immediately because there is also a movement pattern interference. And we know that that takes time to subside. We know that it's in the realm of minutes, but for such a small amount of work, no one's ever done the study to look at how long that interference lasts. We know that if you do 300 contractions of a thumb muscle, it can take between 20 and 25 minutes for that to remove that interference to go. Um. Maybe this partly explains it. So I guess the other thing is, if you're an athlete and you're warming up for an event, we already know that the optimum warm-ups have movement pattern specificity to them. I'm not confident at this stage, at least, of trying to do something that's not so specific in the in the hope that it does something dramatic and that doesn't mean that you can't load something slightly differently i'm sure there's some really cool funky ways that Mm -hmm. (laughs) the high intensity part of your warm-up can be done and i think we're going to find them you know i think we're going to show that doing something with elastic bands is better than not doing it with elastic band or something like this it's just the global idea of the pap that i that i think we need to just understand muscle physiology a little bit better and just reflect on what we've seen so
1: far Sure. I really like how you mentioned the interference effect too. I I, I, I think that's probably why I like French contrast where it's like you're mixing a, a two different strength lifts with two different plyometric lifts it tends to work a little better for people especially in the, that short term because it's like the general vibe of what you're doing is closer to the athletic movement you're trying to train rather than just doing this raw like squat that has the motor pattern for that squat is so different than the the sprint or the um the jump or or whatever i mean probably clo- a little closer to jumping than sprinting but even still i uh it definitely it yeah like and, and that was really fascinating too you're talking about the 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 tmg i believe on the brain and the 300 thumb movements and how just the way patterns stick with you uh is it's almost like if you're warming up and you're a high level athlete You'd probably rather stick with what you know is going to get your your motor pattern optimally ready for the event. As soon as you throw in those other heavy things right in that acute setting, you're kind of. It's almost like you're playing with fire just a little bit. Like that motor pattern might not be exactly 100% what you want it um, to be. And I, I one of the, the I almost feel like this. Um, there's another. Or there's another thing I wanted to ask you about the the PAP because something I've I've seen and. I know that a lot of people will um, t- testify to this is the idea of um, those heavy lifts like that heavy squat or that heavy clean, maybe not being done like right before, but maybe being done the morning before or a day a couple days before or something. And would that that would just work be working more on this the neural drive then aspect. Obviously that that heavy chain is has gone long gone by that point because you had said the half life was so low and obviously the temperature is not a factor. So, like doing like a heavy lift a few days before—that's just all neural drive, then, or I—I I, I don't know if that's even the right term. But uh,
0: <laughs> you love cans of worms. Look, yeah. actually, to be honest, we we don't we don't know. I mean, I'm sure again, a lot of your listeners who are coaches or athletes will have noticed. You know, in the olden days, you'd always take the day off uh, before any kind of major competition, and certainly you wouldn't do anything on the morning of your competition, whatever. And these days, you know, a lot of people, we used to use what we call the captain's run, where the captain would take the team for a very short, sharp, high-intensity session, maybe 30 minutes the day before a game. Other people now actually do training uh, in the morning of a game. And I I know all the the cool, funky stories from the NBA where basketballers are doing these high-intensity gym workouts in the morning and then going and playing a game in the evening. And the idea is that the question is whether this is useful. And actually, there are just now starting to be some projects where people are looking at this uh, in some elite sport institutes. And certainly, we've tried to have a quick look at this. It does appear that maybe training in the morning, say at 9 o'clock, can have some benefit to what occurs at 3 o'clock. It's it's way too early to say what Mm. the benefits possibly are and what the mechanisms are. But there could be several things. And if we're talking about training on the day, Again, yes, muscle temperature could be a key, although if you did a full and proper warm-up, probably that shouldn't be a key. Neural drive could be a key, although I'm not sure how that many hours later we could have that improvement. I don't think that a lot of the hormones flooding your body that tend to ramp up uh, neural drive would still be there if you calm down after that first session, and certainly they can come back up. And certainly if you're you know performing in front of a crowd and it's high-stakes game, I don't think that. That those Those changes in adrenaline will be a factor because they 're going to be much higher testosterone's much higher during the game, for example, yeah. um, or competition. But there are some other possibilities. I mean, it is there is some thought that there can be some residual calcium still sitting within the muscle. I mean, normally you expect that calcium, which of course triggers muscle contraction, to be gone within minutes of maximal muscle contractions. But there are potentially some mechanisms that that could allow some calcium to reside within the myofibers. That's really speculative. Um, Probably a more likely scenario um, is that the brief, intense activity uh, increases the amount of muscle water and that muscle water could theoretically be there for several days. You have you know the muscle pump after a heavyweight training session um, and of course muscle water seems to have effects on um, cross bridge force production through mechanisms. Um, I'm not sure we completely understand but it has a lot to do with how ADP, the, the, the break-off component of ATP, is processed at the crossbridge and that this may affect therefore muscle force. So so, muscle water, you know, and this is in the olden days, one of the ideas was that steroids worked by increasing muscle water, which made you a lot stronger in the first place. And then the, the real benefit came from the fact that you could then train better. Um, and, and we know that, that muscle water can increase you know, muscle fiber force production. So, you know, we're not running these studies right now, we're, we're looking more at what happens in the immediate warm up prior to activity with muscle water and muscle temperature. But I think in the in the next five years, a really cool area of study will be to understand the role of in brief intense sessions on the morning of or the day before practice or sorry, competition, and trying to understand the actual mechanism for this. Uh, my first thought would be muscle water, but yeah it's speculation at this point
1: yeah that's really interesting though yeah it'll be it'll be really cool as cuz that right now those like those tapers you know the the 10 day taper the 7 day taper is very it's just all the art form it's just all this is what i think it is it will work and it work for this athlete but it's like the more the more we know exactly why i always feel like the more i know why the more it helps me to to really be able to put those pieces together because yeah there's there's so many factors and yeah, i thought it's interesting you brought up the muscle water too it made me think of like creatine too and how you there, there's the weight gain but there's there's power improvements oftentimes and uh, even uh talking a little bit with david weck about like the idea of the bot your body fat percentage being a little bit higher you can get better compression and versus a bodybuilder who's on stage at two percent who doesn't have that or something those types of ideals i'm always i always love the things that just run outside of just pure just just the nervous system and just you know sarcomeres in line and just the just the, the contract elements themselves all that stuff is really fascinating to me so I'm, I'm i'm i thought it's really interesting glad you brought that into the conversation there
0: yeah there's a lot to know hey i wish i knew it all i don't sorry about that maybe next time <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I yeah, it's like the more you the, the longer I've I've been in this, the more I realize I don't know. Especially hearing all these interesting new components to things. Uh so I, I wanna skip a a question just to kind of keep this in line a little bit. Um, as we were talking through stretching PAP, uh we, we touched on um the the super maximum or the loaded stretching, and I wanted to follow that up with talking about the fascicle length and muscle fascicle length and and obviously, we, we were saying stretching itself, typical stretching like we do, um, it doesn't really affect the the fascicle length, like that's. Uh, but uh, um, other methods maybe have can have an impact on it. Uh, what? How much can muscle fascicle length actually be improved? And if we're trying to do that, um, what are some optimal things to look at?
0: All right. Well, again, I can give you a very unexpected answer that's probably going to get a few comments and hits uh, to to the podcast. Um, First of all, we can increase the fascicle length with, with training. We can measure that reasonably well with ultrasonography and, and mri and if you use the very very best methods we usually find something like a five sometimes maybe even as much as a 10 percent increase so if you're finding more than a 10 percent increase in fascicle length that would be an exceptional amount of hypertrophy that's a lot of protein to build in just a few weeks of training so you know again it's it's worth reflecting on the possible errors in measurement here um the 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 question for me so back in back in the late 1990s, I was reading a lot of research that that explored the importance of muscle architecture, um, and particularly, it seemed exceptionally clear that differences between species and differences within species between muscles was fundamentally related to the architecture of a muscle. That is, more than its fibre type or anything else, actually the length of the muscle fascicles and potentially even their angles would dictate the muscle's functional properties. And we build, we seem to be built with muscle groups that have variable architectures between muscles uh, so that we can improve our ability to move in a whole bunch of relevant ways. So my theory back in the 90s was, wow, this is remarkable to me. Why isn't everyone looking at this? We should be measuring architecture all the time. And I reckon and that if I could figure out how to build these muscles, give them the right architecture, I could create superhumans. <laughs> um, of course, that's what a lot of people are now thinking today. Um, unfortunately, I have to say I've moved on from that in the sense that I have not been able to prove that hypothesis at all. So I have kind of feel like I've disproved my own hypothesis. I know that other people aren't with me on that. But if we take fascicle length as one, now we've possibly heard that animal studies show that eccentric training lengthens muscle fibers uh, by increasing the number of sarcomies in series. In fact, two studies done by the same lab and replicates of each other at a single point in a single muscle have shown that downhill running can increase the number of sarcomeres in rats, whereas uphill running does the opposite. Hmm. The belief is is that during downhill running, the muscles are eccentric, although in none of those studies did they actually show that that was the case. Since then, a number of animal studies have looked at the effect of eccentric training and across the all other animal studies, there is no clear and significant benefit of eccentric training on sarcomere numbers in muscle fibers. Uh, and particularly three or more studies done by Walter Herzog's group, again, do not show this. Now, Walter Herzog's group did re- redo the study of David Morgan, Lynn and Morgan, um, where the downhill uh, with the downhill and uphill running rats, they actually took muscle not only from the vasus intermedius, which was an unusual choice by Lennon and Morgan, and they did show exactly the same thing, that the vasus intermedius sarcomere number increased in the downhill rats and decreased in the uphill rats. Of course, we don't know what that muscle was doing. But they also used sonomicrometry on the vasus lateralis, the more superficial and much larger muscle, even in rats. And when they did sonomicrometry, they did show that typically downhill running was causing muscle lengthening and uphill was causing muscle shortening. Of course, the muscles were also active at a short muscle length in both of those conditions in the VL. And actually, if you look at their data and their figure, you see that in both downhill and uphill rats, the sarcomere number was reduced in both groups. So in the vastus lateralis muscle, in fact, in downhill and uphill running rats, you lose sarcomeres, irrespective of whether you run downhill or uphill. It's just that in the in, in one of the groups there's a single outlier, which Walter Herzog very nicely showed and, and made sure that everyone understood his data and therefore it didn't statistically um, change. But it's no different from the concentric group. In other words, if you repeat the study and do it properly and look at VL and you know what the muscle does, you actually don't see this effect. So if you take all of the animal studies, across all the animal studies that we know of, there is no unique stimulus of eccentric exercise on sarcomere number adaptation in animals. And this is something that I'm not sure why that that idea is lost. Uh, the second thing is to then think about humans. First of all, we don't measure si- uh, fibre numbers or sarcomere numbers. We, we uh, Sorry, fibre lengths or sarcomere numbers. We only measure the fascicle length. You can argue that that's the most important sort of functional unit and i'd agree with you we also have pretty poor methodologies of measuring it to be honest there they're not perfectly accurate now in those studies it is true that eccentric training seems to cause an increase in fascicle length maybe five or ten percent depending on the study you read But actually, we've also shown that if you reduce weight training and increase speed and jump training, you get increases in fascicle length. We've shown that isometric training at both short and long muscle lengths can increase fascicle length. We've found that concentric training performed at high intensities, although a recent Brazilian group showed that this tends to only occur if you train at longer muscle lengths in isoinertial type training increases fascicle length. In other words, pretty much any time you take someone who hasn't done a lot of training and you give them a high-intensity training form, fascicles seem to get longer. Hmm. The question the question is, and it, and it happens very rapidly, within days or weeks, so it's a very early adaptation. The question is whether eccentrics are unique, and whether these changes in fascicle length actually provide some functional benefit. Now, here, um, Martino Frankie from Mark Narizzi's group, they've done a, several studies and shown clear increases that are greater in eccentric than concentric training. Of course, they were aware that we are much stronger eccentrically, so they provided additional stimulus to the eccentric phase so that you were lifting at 80% of your eccentric max. In other words, They, of course, added extra load to the eccentric phase. Uh, We don't know, therefore, whether it's training load or the eccentric contraction itself. And in other studies that have compared concentric and eccentric training, we often find about the same increase in fascicle length. So at this point, I would argue, based on my reading of the data, that there's no evidence that eccentric training is a unique stimulus. Although because it allows you to lift heavier loads, that might be an important part of increasing fascicle length. The second point here is whether increases in fascicle length are associated with improvements in muscle function. And so far, very few associations or correlations or whatever have been shown between the change in fascicle length with chaining and the change in functional output of the muscle uh we provided some evidence in a jap paper in 2007 that the shift in the torque angle relationship was related to fascicle length change and a lot of people say that this is the case and that's why we do eccentric training right to shift the torque angle relationship but we've so since disproven that i mean i we already knew before those studies of course that isometric training shifts the torque angle relationship as well as can specific range of motion concentric training um And eccentric training does, but we don't think it's any kind of unique stimulus. And since then, we've shown uh, no further relationships between changes in fascicle length and changes in torque angle relationships, uh, muscle power outputs, i.e. force at certain movement speeds. And so, to be honest, we're just not seeing the relationships we expect. You can always pick out some studies, but they are not repeatable, replicatable findings. And so, at the moment, I'm not confident we can specifically target architecture and I'm not specifically confident that that will lead to a specific adaptation in the muscle. And I know a lot of people disagree. I presented this at the ECSS conference this year Luckily, I didn't get my head bitten off too, too um, you know, massively. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you just read the research yourself, I think you might come to similar conclusions. So I guess the final question then is, well, you know, how the hell do we build a muscle and, and how can we, how does training shape the muscle? Well, I think there are some things going on here that in the next five to 10 years, there could be some really cool, sexy research. Um, we know that training affects the aponeurosis thickness and width. Modeling studies by Blemke's group have shown that that can completely change the way change the way the muscle functions and probably make it resistant to injury. So maybe this is why eccentric hamstring training is useful. We be- absolutely know that eccentric training changes extracellular matrix and connective tissue structure functions, uh, relationships, sorry. So we believe that that's got a lot to do with injury minimization and even the improvement in force transmission through the muscle tendon system. So it doesn't mean eccentrics aren't useful it's probably the eccentrics for example are improving muscle function and reducing injury risks through me- mechanisms other than fascicle length change at least that's what i think is happening and and now that we're actually measuring the changes in architecture during contractions to look at how the muscle gearing is changed with training i think i think that's when we'll start to finally uncover how muscles truly function and what training is doing to affect the muscle at that level of of muscle structure
1: yeah that's that again, that that's heavy stuff, man. I, I one thing I do want to ask, and I don't have a huge, um, I personally don't have a huge um, horse in this race, so to speak. I'm not a, I I've never been a person to uh, heavily utilize the uh, heavy eccentrics. I've always just been intrigued by them. I'm always intrigued by what people are doing and and the adaptations they're shooting for and how they're working into their system. Um, as as an athlete, my it, for some reason it never made it too far past myself in the sense that I was just maybe I just had poor prescriptions every time I even tried it before I got too far with it and just blew myself up and didn't want to do it anymore. Um, but I, the, what we were talking about a little bit earlier with the tendon stiffness and compliance, and, and I wonder, is it similar with, you were talking about the patella tendon being stiff, and we were talking about the Achilles and things, like, like each tendon does have a specific job, and with the rat study, the different muscles um, being lengthened a different amount, like depends on what your job is. And so, uh, I, and I have always been under the impression of the muscle fascicles, the longer the better, um, but would it be something that, like, it just depends on the job of the muscle, too, if it is going to be a beneficial thing for force production, like, like the vastus lateralis versus a hamstring versus a gastroc?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely very possible. That's exactly right. It it gets to a different level of complexity. Every tendon has a different job. Every muscle has a different job. And even not only muscles within a synergistic group, but even sections or compartments within individual muscles probably have different jobs and need to be built differently. Maybe a little thought experiment if you do musculoskeletal modeling what you can do is you can manipulate some of the parameters of a muscle and look what happens to overall output you know some uh, listeners might remember some of the papers in the 1980s and 90s by bobert and ingenschnau and those guys showing that if you just change the activation of say the quadriceps during vertical jumping you know to make it stronger you don't necessarily jump higher because it changes your synergies so you end up Mm -hmm. with an inefficient movement pattern and you may jump less high you know jump lower Um, and this is probably the case in all complex movement tasks we never fully activate our muscles Mm -hmm. because we've got such control issues you can't just throw everything you know maximally at the at the problem And, and what you might be trying to do is is alter the architecture of some muscles and that might then bring the their force velocity properties into a certain sweet spot where they function better with other muscles so longer or shorter may not necessarily be better it might be more or less optimum within the whole functional unit so for example you could imagine a situation where if you're doing cycling or sprint running or something like this and certain muscles have moment arms and muscle architectures where at a certain cadence in cycling or a certain stride frequency in sprinting that they're kind of producing their best power outputs but another muscle like gluteus maximus might actually produce its optimum at a lower or higher cadence or stride frequency so you imagine if you simply change the architecture of a gluteus you might it might then function so that it's Optimum cadence or stride frequency is now closer to those other muscles. So if you ran at at an incorrect stride frequency, you could see a decrease in performance. But if you ran at a different, uh, a more optimum stride frequency, you now might find that that training improved you. And so actually, it might be a case that we're trying to build muscles since they work together as a functional unit. in under very specific conditions so if you're a hundred meter sprinter you know how fast you need to run you might need certain muscles and tendons to be optimized for exactly that Mm -hmm. and any issues where you're in the gym training a muscle and you're moving it further away from that optimum without knowing it might have you know negative effects on building the human and we we just we can see it in a musculoskeletal model, but we can't measure that properly in humans and we don't really know what to do with that information. And this is where maybe the art really does take over from the science. You, you, you have to look at your data in your athletes with different training plans. And you know it might work for one athlete because they had certain structure function relationships to start with and that certain type of training doesn't work for them. But in another athlete, it works perfectly well because they were different beasts to start with and you've now optimized their system.
1: Yeah, it it really does bring a whole new meaning to talking about. Well, if you want to sprint faster, the most specific training you can do is is sprinting because everything is, as you said, like there's so many different there's so many different specific jobs and lengths, and it's uh, it's definitely uh, it is really interesting to look at the way the whole machine works the the with everything having its own job and just really understanding all the training that we put in all these all these extraneous factors. Having the depth of understanding of them is is really important, and yeah, that's why I'm always looking for more. For me, the more information I can get on muscle length and eccentric training, the better. As I as I keep I keep trying to decide what to do with it. It's always like, what do I do with this? Um, so, and, and one one final thing I was going to ask you too, and and maybe I didn't catch it well enough the first time is you had said like the isometrics can increase fascicle length. Well, any well anything increases fascicle length in the first few uh, weeks of training. You were saying on the on on maybe like the higher levels like like the weighted stretching or the isometrics um and and i apologize if i missed this but how does that compete potentially with the the super maximal in terms of the fascicle length if the fascicle length is something we're we're seeking to improve or or hoping um can we can we get equal (laughs) or fairly equal around about ballpark probably increases just doing some of these alternative maybe lower intensity if you will methods yeah, look, I yeah, I wish I had the perfect answer.
0: I don't. I, I think I think a lot of it depends on the training history and the current beast you're working with, uh, and then how different the training stimulus is. So, you know, in a, in the study where we did the the maximal activation of the muscle and then forced it into stretch, and they got stronger, their eccentric strength improved, their tendon got stiffer, but they got massive increases in range of motion. Actually, when we've repeated that in the quadriceps, we see very similar outcomes but in that study we we measured fascicle length and and we didn't detect any changes again this is effective eccentric training right and we've found no effect on fascicle length which people don't expect but if if your uh, if your subjects already have i mean i think we I don't think we actually published it but we've seen data where of course within any of our studies people who tend to have longer fascicle lengths to start with tend to have less increase in fascicle length with the training so it, it, you know it sort of hints to us that Whatever this change is, it may not be sarcomere number, it could be lots of things that cause a fascicle to look longer when it's measured at rest under resting conditions. And whatever that is, it seems like loading it may make it look longer. It's doing something, something's mm-hmm. going on in the muscle. And we think that whatever's happening is positive. I just, I just, can't, I'm just not sure what it is. <laughs> but it might be that you, you've got to look at what you've got, what their training history is, what stimuli they normally get, and then. What are you giving to it? So if I'm giving something that's submaximal, maybe it won't do much. But if I then push it to a larger range of motion, maybe it does. I mean, in, in the end, I, I, I guess I can't really answer your question. <laughs> Sorry about that. One, one thing that I will just remind you of, though, is that when we talk about whether eccentrics are useful and, and you're not sure, and that's fantastic, I, I, I must admit my, my bias, my history is that, that eccentric, even eccentric only, rather than necessarily accentuated eccentric, which of course is fantastic, but causes a lot of fatigue in highly trained athletes, just eccentric only, which costs a lot of, a lot less metabolic energy. If you're used to it, you recover very quickly. You don't get any DOMS if you're really used to it. And we've used this in, you know, national and elite level kayakers, international level kayakers, and they significantly improve kayak performance, which we actually didn't expect. And that was just in a training block of about two months. Um, They also improve their VO2 max. We're starting to see these interesting effects of eccentric contractions on glucose metabolism and on fat oxidation. We certainly found a notable increase in VO2 max in our sprint kayak athletes after eccentric training. I think there's things going on with eccentric training Mm -hmm. that that we're only just really scratching the surface of, and that's why I kind of go, wow – Fascicle length change, great. Not not sure how much I necessarily care about it, but gee, it seems to be doing some stuff. I mean, yes. if you even look at the, um, we know that eccentric training um, triggers changes in integrins and other extracellular matrix. Now in, in rat studies, um, the improvement in hypertrophy of a muscle in response to overload of the muscle, in other words, basically strength training of the muscle, seems to be related to the integrin content prior to the training. In other words, if you have... A higher level of or a greater sort of integrin content within the muscle you tended to get more hypertrophy in that rat or in that muscle and that's not a replicated study yet but if that's the case that's interesting because we know that eccentric training can increase integrin content so is it necessary that the eccentric training is giving us all these amazing adaptations now well that depends on your athlete and how you're using it and everything else But one thing we haven't yet studied is whether a period of eccentric training now can help improve adaptations later on by creating these adaptive changes. I I guess it's similar to the fact that we know that increasing stem cell number through one lot of weight training can then help the rate of improvement later on down the track, you know? Uh, And I think this is, again, another really cool area of research and and why I don't like necessarily throwing out eccentrics just because Mm -hmm. I'm not confident that the fascicle length thing is cool because I think there are lots of the really interesting things going on with eccentric training if you use it appropriately
1: oh yeah that's great and if you could uh, send me that study uh, I'll, I'll throw that in the show notes too because I want to check that out uh, yeah for me it's like I've always the only thing I have really used is the Nordic hamstrings and I've always really enjoyed that but it's like like you were saying back a few minutes ago there's might be something else going on there that, that's causing those to be effective and all those other things and I, I'm excited for that research so I'll come down the pipe and as we understand this form of training more and more uh, so but yeah I think that's uh man we, we've really had some game breakers here I'm a, it's uh it's uh, these these uh polarized questions but i I love that stuff and um, your answers really have opened up a whole new world and, and and level of interest for me in some of these things so Tony I, thank you so much for being on today I, I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure, Joel. Uh,
1: I look forward to talking to you again soon. I might have to answer some of the questions we might get. <laughs> yeah, we got about halfway through. So hopefully let's get around two going here down the line. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So, So thank you again. Great. Have a great day. Good to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. Appreciate you being here. And um, that was awesome. I, uh, I just love talking with people who have that holistic view of performance. Uh, who, uh, Again, we can get so polarized. We, 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 we're biased towards something. We pick the studies we like. And then we kind of live with that. And it's nice to have these eye openers. And especially with someone as intelligent as Tony Blazevich. Anyways, we'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Please don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology and amazing blog and amazing tools and equipment, free lab timing system, Gymware, KBox, K-Box, uh, muscle stimulators. They have the best of in the industry. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review. I would truly appreciate it. So iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you are listening to on. We'll see you guys next week.